Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, friends, if you weren't excited about this sermon series before you saw the video introduction, I bet you are now. And I want you to know that this is such a powerful example of Christ-centered service. Here at Faith, that is our mission, to invite people to Christ-centered service. And it's happened in a remarkable way around this sermon series. Bill Schaefer, a member of our congregation, is creating four original pieces of art for each week of this sermon series as we lift up the lives of five biblical characters uh, through the first part of July. And then Greg Leslie comes and makes them come alive through the power of video editing. About a week ago or so, I went by Bill's home to pick up the next set of drawings that he had created. And he told me that for years, he used to watch his friends go on mission trips and build things. And he was sad because that's not his gifting and he never felt as though he could participate. And then, get this, he thanked me. He thanked me for allowing him the opportunity to finally share his gifts in a unique way that would bless our congregation. And friends, I just have to, to note for us the difference between service and volunteering. Volunteering happens because the job has to get done and someone has to do it. Serving happens because it is an expression of faith. Faith that God can and will use, even us, to make a difference in the world. And, and what you're witnessing in this sermon series is how God brings together the giftings of a congregation in such a powerful way to be an offering for you. As we come into God's presence together during worship, that humbles me and makes me grateful to be one of your pastors. So this sermon series was dreamed up way before COVID. Pastor Heather and I were talking about how leaders don't just appear, they're actually shaped by their, their stories of origin, by their beginnings, long before those they lead ever feel their influence. And that there usually are these significant events and significant people that, that pour into the life of a leader that helps shape them into who they become, that most of us who are led by them, we really don't even see that until much later. 
And so we thought we would offer to you a sermon series where we look at some major leaders and characters in the Bible, but we go back and we see in their beginnings, in those first stories, how they were shaped into the leaders that they eventually became. And so we begin this morning with Moses, one of the most amazing leaders of all time. Now you probably know Moses as the deliverer who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea as they were on the run from Pharaoh and eventually then this people was led into the promised land by Joshua. Likely this image of Moses is reinforced at Easter each year during the replay of the famous movie The Ten Commandments but I happen to like Bill Schaefer's version better. This morning, though, I want to take us back to the beginning. Actually, even right before the text that Wyatt read for us. If you have your Bibles, either on a screen or, or on paper, look with me. Turn, turn to Exodus chapter 8. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. And what you're going to see there is this verse. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Huh. Who is Joseph? Okay, so this is the connecting the dots, the taking the stories out of Genesis, those epic beginnings of God's people, and connecting them to what's happening in this story that begins in the book of Exodus. So you might remember in Genesis that Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so these became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of Jacob's sons ended up in Egypt through some uh, malfeasance of his brothers, actually. But because he was there and he worked himself into a position of influence with the Egyptian king, that's, that's the Pharaoh. When there was a famine in the land and, and Jacob's family was in danger of starving to death, they went down to Egypt thinking that things would be better there, and they were. And they found out that Joseph had a position of power and influence among the Egyptian leadership and the Egyptian government. And so it was a good place for them, for Jacob's family, this nation that eventually would become known as, as Israel. At this point, they're just the Hebrew people. So they are in exile, okay? They are refugees in a foreign country, but they do quite well. They enjoy a great deal of privilege until they don't. And that's what this little verse is helping us connect until a new Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph. And so these Hebrew people lost their seats of influence at the Egyptian table. And their strength and their flourishing, which had been a great boon to them at one point in their history, now becomes a threat. And they are conscripted into slavery. But in spite of Pharaoh's best efforts to control them, they continued to thrive. And so Pharaoh gives this order, a tragic order, that all the Hebrew baby boys are to be killed. Moses is born a Hebrew baby boy. He's born a slave. Rather than see him killed, his mother takes an amazing risk. She places him in a basket to float him down the river. He was encountered by Pharaoh's daughter, who took pity on him, the scripture says. 
Moses' older sister's been hiding off to the side, and she sees that Pharaoh's daughter has discovered this little baby, and she takes advantage of the situation. She asks Pharaoh's daughter, can I perhaps find one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, that's a good idea. And that woman who nursed Moses just happened to be his mother. At his mother's breast, don't you know that Moses heard all the songs and stories of his people. Words of hope and liberation were buried in his young soul before he ever knew what was happening. All of these, what would become for him later, subconscious memories are are buried there in this relationship that he has for those first couple of years with his mother. As a young boy, she keeps her her uh, commitment, she takes him back to Pharaoh's court where he goes to live and is raised as an Egyptian prince. Truly, Moses is a man of two mothers. His mother who nursed him, his mother who raised him. Even more than that, friends, I want to draw to our attention this morning, Moses is a man of two cultures. His early experiences in life, both at his mother's breast and then in Pharaoh's court, gave him this unique ability to translate. Sometimes I like to call it cross-pollination, okay? And he's able to see both sides of an issue just because of the way he was raised. He was nursed on the songs of freedom and then trained in the ways of the law and project management and problem solving. And so as we know who Moses becomes, can you see how these shaping influences were so important for him? He made a mistake in his early young adult years. But even that mistake was used by God in preparing him to become the leader who would deliver God's people. Reading in the next verses in Exodus 2, right following the passage that Wyatt read for us, what we learn is that Moses murdered an Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew slave. He saw it happening and he couldn't stand it. And so he took the Egyptian's life, realizing that he'd been seen in the act later He knows he can't stay there any longer. He has to flee, and he flees to Midian. But it's because Moses has this strong internal sense of right and wrong. It could have been his downfall, but he didn't let that mistake define his future. He used this period of wilderness sojourn, friends, to be perfected, to be shaped into the person God needed him to be, A couple of things that he learned during this wilderness sojourn. First of all, he learned how to be mentored. His father-in-law, Jethro, poured into him. It was an important influence in his life during that time that he was in Midian. And he also learned how to pay attention to what God was doing. It was during this season in Midian that God got Moses' attention through the burning bush and revealed to Moses the role he was to play God always intended to free the Hebrew people from slavery and to make good on the promise that God would bring them to a place where they could once again, once again flourish under God-honoring leadership. And God told Moses at the burning bush, and I'm going to do it through you, Moses, which is why Moses is still known as a deliverer. So Moses went back to Egypt then, and he demanded that the Pharaoh let the Hebrew people leave. You know those famous words. Let my people go. 
And this is where I really want us to tune in this morning, friends, because Moses had a unique ability to speak both the language of the oppressor and the language of the oppressed, because he had been both. In his early experiences, he'd vacillated back and forth between being the oppressed and being the oppressor. Several times this had happened to him before he has to approach Pharaoh and offer those all-important words, let my people go, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, whose name was given to Moses in the desert as I am. I am who I am, Yahweh tells him. Moses' ability, friends, to speak from both places was transformational. It means that not only was he leading, but he was leading with this powerful purpose. And that could not be a more timely message for us today. I want to tell you a story. It happened to me this week. On Thursday of actually last week, a few days ago, one of my dear friends, Jennifer Long, came by my house so that we could sit outside and visit safely social distanced. She's currently the pastor at the United Methodist Church in Uluga, which happens to be my hometown. Jennifer and I have been friends for a long time, long before she became the pastor at Uluga. But you know those friends that you have known a long time and they're like safe space for you. You just know that you can have those hard conversations with one another. And so that's the kind of friendship that Jennifer and I share. And so we were talking about hard things, like the racial tensions that are boiling over in every part of our nation right now. She told me a story that, that really, I thought, pointed out what made Moses great. Now, she didn't use Moses' name at all, but I want to share with you the story that she told me. And I want us to look for this great promise that this story holds for us as we wonder what, what is happening in our world and what we can do about it. I know that many of you are struggling with that right now. I've seen your posts on Facebook. You've let me know through the relationships and the connections that we have that, that many of us feel somewhat at a loss. And I want to share what Jennifer shared with me. She said about 10 days ago, one of her church members had texted her very distraught about the reality of black folk, and also distraught because this church member had been called out on Facebook by one of her high school classmates when she thought, the church member thought, that she was trying to stand up for racial equality. Turns out that her church member, who happens to be white, had played on sports teams at Uluga High School with a few people of color. Now, because, friends, remember, this is my hometown, okay? I started kindergarten at Uluga, and I graduated from high school in Uluga. And I can tell you that in all of my 13 years in that school system, there was never one black student. 13 years, not one, okay? So, so I, I understood immediately when she started telling this story about this church member, it was like, oh, I know that situation, that that's my hometown. Obviously, it had changed just a bit. There were a few people of color on her uh, sports team. So, so Jennifer's church members' experience was that playing on the same sports team made everyone equal regardless of race, which is what she had posted on Facebook. And she'd been called out by one of her high school classmates who happened to be black. 
And she was upset, the church member was, because she thought she was speaking in support of racial equality and inclusion when she made that post on Facebook. Now, Jennifer is so smart. She's one of the smartest people I know, and she knows that when a church member sends you a text like that, you don't text back. She called her, and she had a conversation with her church member, and she asked her, did you ever ask your black classmate what it was like for her to go to school at Ulaga? Did you, did you all ever talk about whether she was called racist names by people at school or felt isolated or alone in her years at Ulaga? No, she said. I, I never thought to do that. And then Jennifer asked her, she said, did you ever have any black teachers? Were there ever administrators at your school who were people of color? Now, friends, remember, I know the answers to these questions. Okay, this is my hometown. This is where I was raised. I know this school system, and I know the answer is no. And so her church member says back to her, well, why, why does that matter? And Jennifer said, because if you never see people like you in positions of leadership, you don't see that it is possible for you to attain those positions either. And if voices of color aren't a part of the conversation, you can be sure that they won't ever be trusted with leadership. Well, not to be dissuaded, Jennifer's church member insisted, well, then they have to do something. As a church, right, they have to do something. This just isn't right. So Jennifer suggested, you know, maybe the first thing you need to do is listen. Listen to some of the people of color that are in your life, people that you have acquaintances with or friendships with. And to her credit, this was so great. Jennifer's telling me this story. Remember, her church member goes to church in Uluga, but she lives in North Tulsa. So her church member was out uh, walking her neighborhood, and there was a, a black gentleman who was mowing his lawn one evening last week. And so she just went up to the guy and said, Hey, you know, I... If you could just stop for a minute, I I need to visit with you. And the guy talked to her. And and so she said, so what is it that that you need from me, a white person? How, How can I help in this situation? And this is what the guy told her. There are never people like us in places of power. If you know anyone in positions of power and influence, or if you know anyone who knows someone in those positions, listen to this. He said, Could you please just tell them to listen to us? That's what he said to her. And so then, Jennifer's church member calls her up and says, Do you know that's all they want? They just want someone to listen to them. And here she was going to plan a big potluck at the church, which is not safe, by the way. Okay, and they were going to plan rallies, and they were going to have marches, and they were going to pro- and they were going to do all this stuff. And she said, "Do you know that's all they want? They, they just want someone to listen to them." Friends, can can I just point out for us that what this woman in Ulaga is learning is how to translate between the language of the oppressor and the language of the oppressed. She is willing to gain awareness about her own native language. I grew up 
in Uluga, Oklahoma. For 13 years in the school system that I attended, never one black student, let alone black teachers, black administrators, voices from people of color ever, okay? That's not my fault, right? But what it means is that my native language is the language of the oppressor. That's the language I grew up with. Can I learn a new language? One would hope. This woman is gaining new awareness about her native language. And then she's gaining new awareness about a language that she has not yet spoken. The language of the oppressed. And from that seat, I can promise you, she is going to generate the kind of change that we all long for. People of color, people who are bland, like me. People who have spent their whole lives being afraid. And people who have spent their whole lives experiencing a privilege that they have no idea that that's a privilege for them. This woman is learning to translate those languages and help each other talk to each other. And it's exactly what Moses did in his leadership that made him so powerful and influential. And so I ask you this morning, friends, what is your native language? What language was taught to you before you were ever old enough to form words? Like Moses, right? He learned the language of the oppressed at his mother's breast. Before he was ever old enough to know that that was his language, that's the language he learned. What's your native language? And can you step back and see that language with eyes of new awareness? And can you learn a new language when you are thrust into a new household with new norms and new realities? You see, that's what Moses had to do. He had learned one language before he was ever conscious of it, and then he had to learn a different language in Pharaoh's household. Most importantly, can you translate for those in both worlds? Can you help them hear each other? And see their common humanity together. Because that's where the hope is. So I want to encourage us, friends, to listen for the other language. Can, can we do that for each other? Whatever language is different or hard for you, can you learn to listen for that language a little bit better? Make sure that you're hearing those voices from experiences that are not like yours. And as God leads, may we all be brave enough to translate for each other. Can we help each other that way? May we have the courage to insist, yes, we are going to hear each other. We are. We're going to learn to listen. And may we have the humility, oh, may we have the humility to listen first and talk second. So important. I think we have so much to learn from Moses it's a rich, rich story illustrated beautifully by a member of our congregation and brought to life by another member. It's beautiful. So may we learn from Moses and see what God will do. Amen. Amen.